Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Saddlewick. Today, my guest is Brian Bond, Executive Director of PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, the first and largest organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people, their parents, families, and allies. With over 400 chapters and 200,000 members and supporters crossing multiple generations of families in major urban centers, small cities, and rural areas across America. Brian leads PFLAG, providing support and initiatives to ensure the equality of LGBTQIA persons. Brian is no stranger to being front and center on positions of what some people would identify as controversial. But instead of sidestepping these initiatives, he finds himself embracing the opportunities. It's doubtful Brian had much of a choice, considering his mother was a notable leader in the Missouri Democratic Party, and he himself came out publicly to his parents in high school, launching him on a path of leadership that he continues forward with to this day. Brian was the former executive director of the Victory Fund, the executive director of the Democratic National Committee Gay and Lesbian Leadership Fund, the National Constituency Director of Obama for America, and the Deputy Director of the White House Office of Public Liaison during the Obama administration. Anyone in the LGBTQIA community in the United States would be hard-pressed not to have benefited from the lifelong dedication to equality that Brian has been committed to his entire adult life. Welcome to Breaking Protocol, Brian Bond. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, hey, everybody. I am Brian Bond. My pronouns are he, him, and his. I'm so happy to have you here on Breaking Protocol, Brian, and welcome to the show, of course. If you'll indulge me for a little bit, I want to take a stroll down memory lane, specifically memory lane of the LGBTQIA equality initiatives to get a perspective of where we have been, where we've come from. You know, I've participated in several talks this Pride Month on the subject matter of inclusion, equality, equity, and diversity. But take me back to when you first participated in your initial equality initiatives and give me the perspective were you protesting back then or were you celebrating back then? That's a great question, Bob. Uh, and first, I, I would be remiss if I didn't thank you uh, and your husband for all that you've done to move the ball forward. Uh, oh, you, you've, been you. in the, you've been in the trenches a while yourself. Maybe <laughs> I may be a little older, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, you, you've got your battle scars as well. So thank you for that and, and for always believing in better angels, if you will, sure. uh, that are out there. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I have to think, Bob, I, I probably, I don't know if it was so much for me protesting or celebrating as much as advocating. Uh, it, it just seems like I was always put in a position of, oh, God, I'm the queer in the room. Right. You know, and across communities, you, you know, that's a common thing, right? Sure. It's funny. I'm, I'm going to go back to and I'm going to forget the year on this, but it was, I want to say in the eighties, I was just a, a, a young democratic operative and I was sent to Louisiana for a special congressional race. 
And in that congressional race, the it was at that point, Louisiana was much more competitive, many of the seats <laughs> than they are today. And the, the candidate, the Democrat candidate I was supporting ultimately lost. But something happened in that meeting that I just found pretty amazing. So it appears that the Republican in that situation was was often thought of as being closeted. And some of the operatives that were supporting the, the Democrat, the person I was sent there to support through the DNC, were like, well, we should put stuff out on him. You know, this is back in when HIV had just started up, right? Like, we should say something like he's, you know, maybe got HIV or whatever. These are Democratic operatives back in the, you know, back in the day. And I was just sitting there going, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm hearing this. And this is where I also believe that there are good people out there. This particular candidate said, that's not how I want to win this race. Which I, I found incredible, right? Like I didn't have to be the voice. I didn't have to speak up. And honestly, I don't know that I had the courage at that point in my career to speak up. But in this situation, at least, here was a candidate who was like, I'm not going to try to win that way, uh, which I felt found very noble. That's where I also kind of started to believe there are good advocates and allies out there for us that can help us in this struggle. At the same time, I knew I needed to start stepping up my game. To be silent does not help anyone. So you began advocating on behalf of these initiatives in the political arena? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And did you find that challenging from a perspective that you were an openly gay man? Or did you find that challenging from a perspective of just the policy uh, mm -hmm. at the time, the era in which you were uh, initially becoming involved in, in the political movement? So that's that's also a good question. You, you know, you have to put it in context of the times, right? Sure. It was a different world. The work I had started doing off and on with the DNC, there were some great role models. Gene O'Leary, who was a, uh, an amazing DNC member from California. Uh, Rick Stafford, who was the out, first out state party chair. Both have passed since. Uh, and there's still, you know, s some of the folks still in the trenches today, the Mandy Carters of the world and Raymond Buckley, who is now chair of New Hampshire, who was a kid at that point and learning from them. And, you know, we really do, especially in the case of like a Gene O'Leary uh, and a Rick Stafford uh, and a Mandy Carter, you know, these are and from a party perspective, we stand on their shoulders uh, because, you know, it, it is it was incredibly frustrating when you sit in a meeting and say, oh, God, I guess we need to do something. It's Pride Month or, you know, whatever it may be. Right. Right. And, you know, there, there were plenty of allies in the room, but there also was a responsibility and a burden, as it is on any community that feels marginalized to to need to have to speak up. I guess I say all that to say, Bob, I, I probably came from more of an insider game than an outsider game. So probably less, that's why I say advocacy versus protesting, uh, sure. of just continually trying to move the ball forward and, and figuring out who are those allies. Like one of the incredible people out there is David Mixner, for instance, when we, you know, my political career per se really kicked off bigger, if you will, when uh, Bill Clinton was elected president. And, uh, and you have David Mixner who, you know, really pushed President Clinton along and then Governor Clinton to be the LGBTQ or at that point, gay and lesbian advocate. Sure. Uh, now there were some bumps in the road and David actually took some hits for that because he stood up. And because he stood up, it did make it easier for people like me to continue to push forward. Right. You know, looking back over the course of your career in supporting equality initiatives, 
you know, the challenges have changed along the way and the perspective of those who you have been reaching out to, you know, has most likely changed as well. You know, what's the most notable change you've seen and are the challenges today just as significant as they were when you started on this journey? Again, putting things in context of time, getting people to say our names now and acknowledging us is way easier than it was clearly, you know, there was, you know, I'm old enough where it was, it was gay (laughs) and then it was gay and lesbian and then it was lesbian and gay and then it was LGB and then it's LGBTQ plus now, right? And IA, you know, getting And if you can talk a little bit about the significance of that, what that means, that people are actually acknowledged in that acronym and why that's important. Yes, and it is important. It's the, I'll do. I'll come back to that. I think the the challenge has been for many of us in the community is to always make sure that the rhetoric, as it has evolved, the positive rhetoric, as it has evolved, that the policies meet that. Right. That that it's not just the saying our name. It is producing for us. It is having us at the table. It is including us in discussions, not just during Pride Month, but year round. And and when it involves families uh, and when it involves youth, uh, it's not just singling us out as a as a specific project, if you will, but weaving us into the entire fabric of policies that are being made on our behalf or in some cases not on our behalf. Talk a little bit, if you can, address why the acronym is so important and why each group within the community is represented in that acronym, why the acknowledgement is important. Why can't we just be gay? (laughs) Because we're not homogeneous, right? We, we, we're across the spectrum and, and people want to see themselves and that's okay. I mean, you know, I, I think it's important. I, I myself need to do a better job of that. And, and I know that. And we also have to be mindful that we're, we are wanting allies. So we're bringing people along. So we have to explain why it matters. We have to explain why pronouns matter, you know, why people want to see themselves. So this, some of this is not new. It, it, it's, but we are, pushing the envelope further than we ever have, but we can't expect people to get it perfect or get it right, uh, right off the bat. And, and we can't be angry about that. We have to help them along in that. Now, if somebody's a recidivist offender on it, yeah, you know, blow them up. But most, I tend to still believe most people are of goodwill uh, and, and it's our, job to help bring them along. You know, it's funny, and, and sorry, I'm going to go back even further in history. I, I was um, at the podium, uh, or behind the podium, when Bill Clinton gave his acceptance speech in 1992, and I could see the um, speech scrolling as he was, you know, the teleprompter. And all of a sudden, as he was, he was doing kind of the litany of his party, the litany of us, it did not say gay or straight in there. He added himself gay or straight. Now that's 1992. So just throwing the word gay in, you know, it's like, Oh, national television. Right. He did that on his own instinctively. It was not in those remarks. And the, the pride that I felt at that moment, I can't even, you know, it's the same as, as this year when president 
Biden was sworn in, gave his remarks and mentioned transgender Americans. Sure. There's a pride there is like, oh, my God, we are included. And I think that's, you know, for so much of this community, it's very resilient, you know, but we want to hear our name. And, and beyond that, I think we've moved past just wanting to hear our name. We want results. We need results. And, and because, you know, as you've seen, you know, this year, for instance, was a really bad year in state legislatures. Hundreds of bills impact our community and, and many most trans, uh, targeting transgender youth. It's just mean. It's wrong. It's mean-spirited. And it's totally for political gain. It serves no value other than that. Yeah, it is truly disappointing. And, you know, I, I will say that, you know, I do have to stress also your comment regarding our own community. We, those of us within the community ourselves, we don't always get it right either. And, mm -hmm. and I think that we still have obvious growing pains and are going to continue to have these growing pains for a while. You know, a significant portion of your work has involved the public sector, clearly, uh, public sector engagement uh, with government and elected leaders. Do you find yourself disappointed with those in whom you've placed personal positions of trust? And how do you resolve those conflicts when you do? I would be lying if I didn't say I've been disappointed before, but I also, you know, every time there's a disappointment, there's an opportunity to have a discussion to try to move the ball forward. President Obama was pretty intuitive of what was going on. Uh, he was, and he was a long-term thinker. Yeah, he's a pretty uh, smart guy. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, pretty, pretty smart. Uh, uh, and in that first Pride event, he knew there were both, uh, and so he had only been in office like five, six months when Pride happened in 2009. He knew that there was incredible frustration at him, at the pace of progress and expectations on him. And to the public, to the world, to that crowd, you know, he, he, he basically said, it's not my place to tell you to, to be patient. You know, and, and, and I just found, of course, I, I came back, I started to regret those words because the, the community, of course, was like, okay, we're not going to be patient. We want this now. The president said, do it. Uh, and I was like, dang, why do you have to say that? But, but he, he, he knew that public opinion and political people don't always lead, right? The communities involved have to lead or have to create, help create that narrative to give courage, if you will, uh, and or necessity and or urgency to act. He knew that. And, and, and while sometimes people, if you're especially on the inside game, you're like, oh, my God, you know, it helped create that groundswell of why to move the ball forward. And, and I think for a lot of political elected officials, you know, yes, there's some definite major leaders out there uh, and brave people. I, I, I will Nobody's better than Tammy Baldwin, for instance. Yeah, sure. Senator Baldwin. But but you know, but she also comes from the community, right? So you know, she she knew and she she was our voice. But you know, there are incredible leaders out there. But I think the, the community plays an important role in creating those leaders. Like we're right now, as you know, in the middle of the Equality Act discussions. I tell folks, if you're even if you're in a state where the senator is supportive of the Equality Act. Call them, let light a fire under them. Let them know this is a priority for this community. You know, it's don't put all the burden on the people who are in states with 
uh, unresponsive or less than supportive senators. You know, they'll do their part, but put a fire under people who say they're our allies and turn them into advocates. So over the course of your political involvement in, in your adult life, you speak of contacting and reaching out to your elected official. Mm-hmm. That was something I think everyone would agree was far more effective in the days pre-internet. But mm-hmm. now these elected officials are so inundated with information from a hundred different directions. Does the old fashioned, you know, reaching out via calling their Senate offices on Capitol Hill really have any influence, do you think? Yes, I do believe it does. Yeah, yeah, let me be let me let me uh, be a little clear on that though. And Bob, that's a really good question because if it's somebody from their state or their district, you know, the noise uh, from the internet and everything from other places that are not that don't vote for them, it doesn't matter as much, right? I mean, it's as far as impacting the decision of how they may vote. But I still believe that most senators and House members are responsive to input from their specific constituents. You know, me sending a note to Senator X in whatever state probably has no impact. But if you have six or seven parents from that state saying, we need you to be more engaged on the Equality Act, they'll start paying attention after a certain while. So I think I hear what you're saying, though. I think there's so much noise out there, you know, and people become this national or international kind of player, depending on on that noise. But at the end of the day, they have to get reelected. Well, it's nice to know that you feel that it does matter. And I hope that uh, I hope our listeners will take that to heart. I want to address something. Not all LGBTQIA persons actually support political platforms that place equality as a priority. In fact, there are some that actually support and vote for candidates that are publicly and candidly opposed to the quality of not only LGBTQIA persons, but they also oppose the equality of women and people of color and policies that continue to suppress the economically marginalized communities. Now, PFLAG is a nonpartisan organization, but do you ever find yourself faced with political conflicts within your own community, and how do you resolve those? So PFLAG is both, is not only nonpartisan, it is a nonprofit. So we do not engage in any partisan political electoral activity at all. What we do do, however, and what we are able to do is to educate our members and the public on how a certain position a candidate or elected official is taking may impact LGBTQ plus individuals. You know, it's a fine line that, that we don't cross. You know, I will say I've had a couple of people who've pushed back within our network who have said, you know, this is not what you should be doing. You know, you should be focusing on just support. Uh, but at the end of the day, from my perspective, advocacy and advocating, what, what does advocacy mean, right? We are advocating for the safety of LGBTQ plus individuals and their families who can also be discriminated against. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, we, and we try to meet people where they are on the, on the journey of their loved ones coming out, but 
there is also a point where if if what they support writ large is actually going to completely harm their LGBTQ plus loved one, I kind of need to point that out. I think we've lost maybe a couple of people over the last few years because, you know, we've been more assertive, if you will, of what happened to, to George Floyd happens to all of us. What sure. happened, what the former administration did to LGBTQ plus individuals, trans folks in the military, other things happens to all of us. Uh, and it's a short step, you know, to, to even more stuff going on that, than they've already perpetuated. So yeah, we have probably lost a couple people with that, but we really try to educate more than anything. And if somebody disagrees with us, they disagree with us. So PFLAG is an organization that provides a platform for, you know, parents and friends, allies of lesbians and gays to voice their support. And I assume also their concerns about the challenges their children and friends who are members of the LGBTQIA community face. What are the biggest concerns you're hearing today that are voiced by your members? And what resolutions have you collectively achieved that provide insight and in some cases comfort to those who struggle with the sexuality of their children and their friends? Sure. Uh, Look, I'm actually, and you know, I've had some pretty cool jobs. Uh, There's no doubt. I love my job. Uh, Nothing could be more heartwarming and fulfilling uh, and a little bit intimidating when you're dealing with a bunch of moms, by the way, (laughs) than watching what, what P flaggers do every day. It's, it really is. I know this sounds corny, but it really is about love. It really is about affirmation and support. Parents, these, these individuals, not just parents, but allies and, and other family members and friends, they want, they're in this, this fight, if you will, or this movement to make sure their kids are safe. Their kids are treated like everybody else, that their kids have the same opportunities. You know, when you see safety, respect, love affirmation and that's part of that comes through our support network uh you know like you said at the beginning there's over 400 chapters around the country covid clearly had an impact on us but we were able to switch uh, the majority of the chapters to virtual meetings and or some did other versions so that families could connect uh during you know think about it you got one of the biggest challenges during all this was you know you have kids that may have come out and are now stuck at home in situations, right, uh, where support, their ne- their natural networks were not there for them. So we were able to provide a virtual resource for people to get together uh, to support one another. You know, and I think, again, going back to the Advocacy the Equality Act, the bad bills, you know, the bad bills in these states, you know, uh, you know, the impact on individuals' lives, you know, people, when somebody speaks out with one of these egregious bills, Kids listen, kids hear it, right? And, and, and they know they're being talked about. You know, having supportive families there is a crucial component to pushing back on that. Uh, there's a, and you probably know this stat, Bob, but you know, if a kid has one supportive adult in their life, a LGBTQ plus kid has one supportive adult, one supportive adult in their life, they're 40% less likely to attempt suicide. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because everyone finds themselves at some point in their life standing, you know, at a door faced with the decision to walk through it and live authentically or remain confined by self-imposed norms. You know, as a result, 
a large percentage of teens are faced with discovering their own sexuality, have found themselves contemplating suicide. Mm -hmm. So why in 2021, you know, why are we still so faced with a stigma around being identified as gay or queer? And what programs does PFLAG provide for its members to support their loved ones who are faced with these these thoughts of suicide and these challenges? So we we have a bad the why uh, I I don't know that I have an, a, a you know a concrete answer on why. My anecdotal answer is we're in an interesting times right now. You know you mentioned internet right the internet bullying. You know people people we we feel I think in many cases we are more disconnected than ever. Uh, from each other, from our community, and I'm talking the larger community here, uh, as a world, as a city, as a, as a, whatever it may be, a town, and I think we're more divided than we've ever been, and so it's easy to judge and hate right now, but there's there's consequences to that, and real lives. I'll, I'll spare you uh, some of the details, but I did something this year I never thought I would have to do. Certainly in this job, a 13 year old gay kid died by suicide in January and right before the inauguration. Uh, and uh, I was reached out to by a chapter leader on this and who is reached out to by, believe it or not, a highway patrol person, highway patrolman who, who was trying to find resources to help this family bury their kid. They lived in a trailer. They had no money. They needed, they just were trying to get closure. They had supported, they were trying working on supporting their kid when he came out. Uh, and this is this year, but his peers, not so much. And so long story short, I got on the phone. We were able to raise the funds to anonymously uh, bury this kid to give his family some peace. That's how crucial it still is and how important it still is that all the groups out there are doing the work they're doing. You, know, uh, you to- mentioned earlier in our conversation, Brian, about standing on the shoulders and the importance of our history uh, as a community. Do you think we're doing a good enough job, those leaders today, notable leaders today in the LGBTQIA movement? Are we doing a good enough job? in educating the youthful community of, of gay and queer people in the world? Are we doing a good enough job helping them to understand that we have actually provided these platforms for them to stand on today? And if not, could we do a better job of it? Part of the problem is I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I don't, I don't know if there's ever, um, a good enough job. <laughs> uh, but I think part of the problem is, uh, I, and I can only speak for myself, there is so much going on right now, combating to your point, like, you know, the bad trans bills, the bad bills writ large, you know, trying to figure out how to move the Equality Act forward. You know, and I think you have, it is important to educate. And I know there are people and organizations that do that. But at the same time, we're trying, we, there's a lot going on. And, and people want results. And, and you know, it's, it'd be great, you know, if, I think, you know, David Mixner, to his credit, does do a good uh, effort in trying to educate uh, uh, where we've come from. I also think, you know, it, it is good. To, it's important for context to say this is where we were. And, you know, in 1992, when, for instance, like, you know, like, look at the days when when Ronald Reagan was president and and wouldn't even say the word HIV AIDS. Right. right. To 
to then 1992, you have Bill Clinton say the word gay and lesbian. And then to Barack Obama, who you know, adds the word transgender to that. And then you have President Biden, you know, in his inaugural speech mentioning us. And, and I, from what I hear, he's even married a few gay folks and queer folks. So, you know, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, but that's but, but at the same time, you know, it's important. People need to understand the history. People also want results. At what point will we stop being demonized? Sure. Right. And, and it's not with that demonization comes real risk and death of individuals. Right. And especially in this time we're in right now, that's why we all need to be diligent. We all need to be engaged. I do want to answer uh, before we do close, though, Bob, uh, to any of your viewers, if they are on that journey with their kids and need guidance, they should just go to pflag.org find a chapter and, and identify a chapter in their area, reach out to them. Uh, these, these are the most amazing volunteers that, that want to be supportive and help. Uh, so, you know, again, pflag.org, uh, find a chapter. Uh, and, you know, there will be people there that will, can, you know, it's not all about parades. Yeah, sure. it, it is about support and, and affirm, affirmation. You know, I've personally spent a lot of time, Brian, over the years traveling around the world, talking with LGBTQ groups in developing democracies and engaging with U.S. organizations that provide support and platforms for these groups to find their voice in their own governments. Does PFLAG participate uh, in the international arena? And what are the challenges you feel that the international community most face? I, so PFLAG has provided tools and resources when asked uh, from various parent-related organizations around the globe. Uh, and certainly most of our stuff can be pulled down uh, and utilized. Uh, you know, I know, especially since I've been here, I think one situation comes to mind where there's a, an amazing activist named Claire in Uganda. And um, basically she just asked for three of our materials in English, which she translated into uh, some dialects uh, for to use back in Uganda. Uh, but it's a really great question, Bob, because PFLAG will be 50 years old in 2023. Yeah. What does part of the next 50 look like for PFLAG, especially since we do have uh, what I would say is probably the most pro LGBTQ plus administration context of time of where we are right now. I think there's a role for PFLAG not to lead, but to, to, to be a convening role, you know, to go through our lessons learned, to be supportive where we can. Uh, I think this is something I think we can do, we should be doing, and I'm going to look at doing, again, lots of hard work is going on out there, you know that, uh, every day, but maybe there's a way for us to be helpful, and, you know, so it doesn't have to be quite so hard, and also for them to know that there is support here for what they're doing. So, the show is called Breaking Protocol, and I always like to pose this question to my guests. You've been involved in what a lot of people consider controversial measures, uh, why equality of, of human beings is controversial is beyond my ability to conceive. But nonetheless, there are people out there that would call it controversial. Breaking protocol is something that I have been involved with, I think, my whole life. When is your most notable time where you broke some protocol and how did that work out for you? Stumping me a little bit on that one. Uh, 
first of all, while you mentioned breaking protocol, uh, at some point, hopefully post-COVID now, I'll, I'll actually get my book signed. Again, I think it goes back to, I'll give you two quick ones. One, uh, I was extremely upset about something that something that happened during the Clinton administration. And I went into my supervisor and I was just, I was about to lose it. And brilliant woman. And she, she gave me three tools to use in my, it's like to, to, from an advocacy perspective of how to use that as a learning exercise and correct it. The second thing that I would say, it's more about what I said, needing to step up and needing to be comfortable being a voice. Uh, and, and all of us have that out there. So in the first meeting in the, uh, and I love telling this story in the first meeting with the president around LGBTQ plus issues in the Roosevelt room, Everybody was there in the White House that, that mattered. Anybody that had any decision-making, whatever. And it was all about what was the president going to do to move the ball forward on things. And this was this would have been in April of 2009. And so everybody spoke. I'm talking people way above my pay grade. And finally, got. I was the last one. I was sitting across from him. He looked at me and he goes, what do you think? And I literally just said, because, I mean, besides being a little overwhelmed, I, I said, I think it's all been said. I just think we need to get to work. And so meeting ended, Valerie Jarrett, senior advisor to the president, my mentor standing at the door waiting for me. Her response was, or first thing she said to me, and I was just like still in awe this meeting happened, right? And she goes, next time the president of the United States asks you for your opinion, you give it to him. And I was like, yes, ma'am. And so I say all that, and I use this as an example. If somebody asks you for your opinion, give it. If somebody doesn't ask you for your opinion, if you feel like it involves, you have something important to say, just figure out how to how to how to get the gumption up to do it because you only get so many opportunities. Now, needless to say, anytime I was ever asked a question again, I gave an answer. But it was a really important learning exercise for me from an advocacy perspective as well. Well, that was some incredible advice uh, that I'll certainly take to heart, and I know. I know everyone listening will most likely take that to heart as well. Brian Bond, thank you for joining Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowick. And thank all of you for listening. If you know someone or you are with someone who is seeking ways to engage and support their gay children or friends, uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community, please contact PFLAG at pflag.org. There are over 400 chapters nationwide, and I assure you an extended hand is there to welcome you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today, and please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes. If you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or for download to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Have a beautiful day and many blessings.